Well, that's, that's really, that's it. Um, now, Socrates in the city, uh, of course, takes the name from Socrates because Socrates famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And then he chugged the hemlock and died. And no, that's, I have that out of order, don't I? He said the unexamined life is not worth living at some point early in his career. And he said it in a very positive way, meaning that uh, we ought to examine our lives. Uh, and of course, I think he's quite right. We ought to examine our lives. And it makes life much more worth living. So a bunch of uh, folks, most of them friends of mine and I, were just sort of thinking that most New Yorkers are so busy that they, we don't really take out the time in our lives to examine our lives with any particular rigor. And uh, so we thought that putting on these events called Socrates in the City and inviting speakers like Dr. Kreeft to address some of the big issues of life would be advisable. And uh, it actually turns out that we were dead wrong. These have been a disaster, and I, I think this will be the last one we do. Is that right? Now, I'm glad you're laughing, because that means uh, you found that funny. Uh, these, um, these have really been extraordinary, I have to say. I'm humbled. I'm humbled by the turnout tonight, and uh, the turnout has been consistently good. The speakers have been wonderful, and these things um, uh, have been as successful as I had hoped. Um, but in any case, we call these events Socrates in the City, Conversations on the Examined Life, and they're meant to be conversations, not only in the question and answer which follows the talk, but uh, after these events, um, when we leave from here, we hope that we've sort of begun a conversation in your mind and that you will be thinking about these things. We would love to uh, uh, encourage you to buy a book from the book table. There are amazing books at this book table, and uh, they are all sort of dealing with the bigger questions. And I would heartily encourage you to keep thinking about this stuff uh, on your own between tonight and the, next, and the next time we can meet, <clears throat> which will probably be in mid-March. Uh, in any case, you can't go wrong following Socrates' advice on the matter of examining your life. Of course, Socrates didn't have to pay New York rents, and he could just spend all his time thinking about uh, his life. Um, but you get the idea. It's a good idea, and we're thrilled uh, that you could be here to do it with us. Tonight, we're privileged to have the estimable Dr. Peter Kraft with us. Dr. Kraft is a philosophy professor at Boston College, which I'm told uh, is located in Boston. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, he's also a very, very much sought-after speaker. Believe me, it was very difficult to get him. Uh, we're lucky to have him. He's written many books, over 40, many bestsellers among them. Most notably for tonight, he's written an absolutely fabulous book titled, appropriately enough, Making Sense Out of Suffering. And of course, that will be his subject. So that is the goal of Socrates in the City to attack the big questions, the biggest questions of them all about the existence of God, about what it is to be human, about evil and suffering, about where we come from and where we're going. And we shouldn't be scared by those ultimate questions. Of course, living in New York, you sometimes get the idea that the biggest questions that we deal with are along the lines of like, do I take the cab or the subway? Or um, you know, if I'm on the second floor, <clears throat> do I take the elevator or should I walk down? That's a big one for me. Uh, for, uh, for Boston, where Dr. Kraft is from, I think one of the big questions that's um, really in the minds of Bostonians and the people in Massachusetts for a long time now is, why did um, Dukakis wear that absurd helmet in that photograph? And uh, I don't think there's an answer. That's sort of a, it's almost a rhetorical question, isn't it? I don't think there's an answer. Another question, of course, Bostonians uh, have, one of the big ultimate questions if you live in Boston, is why can't the Red Sox get it together and win a World Series? Um, I'm sorry, that's probably below the belt, Dr. Craig. Please don't leave. Um, 
you have to keep in mind that I'm a, I'm a Met fan, so we're brothers in our sort of dis, disdain of the Yankees. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a bond that, that, that we share as a Met fan and a Red Sox fan. And we'll just pretend uh, that the Bill Buckner thing never happened. And uh, we'll, we'll just be friends. Um, Anyway, uh, just as we all tend to do, Woody Allen, in his writings, always had a knack for putting the huge philosophical uh, questions right up alongside the sort of picayune practical problems of life. And there are a couple of things that he wrote which I love, and I want to share them with you this evening. Uh, He wrote, um, can we actually know the universe? My goodness, it's hard enough finding your way around in Chinatown. It's It's such typical Woody Allen, it's almost not funny, right? The universe, he writes, the universe is merely a fleeting idea in God's mind, a pretty uncomfortable thought, particularly if you've just made a down payment on a house. <laughs> and this is my favorite. This is more apocalyptic, more apocalyptic, really, um, than it is philosophical. He wrote, the lion and the lamb will lie down together, but the lamb won't get much sleep. You'll never, be, you'll never be able to stop thinking of that. It's terrible. It's terrible. I wish I'd written it. Um, anyway, perhaps one question many of us uh, have here tonight uh, is whether the speaker's name is pronounced Kreeft or Kreeft. At least it was for me. But in dealing with Dr. Kreeft over the phone, I've come to hear him say Kreeft a number of times, and I just sort of assume he would know. So, uh, so whether he's right or wrong, we're just going to follow his lead and drop, drop that question. Um, but seriously, folks, I've been privileged to read a number of Dr. Kreeft's books over the years, and I have to say they're delightfully readable and lucid. I think that accounts for his extraordinary popularity as an author and as a speaker. I first heard Dr. Kreeft at Oxford University in England uh, at the 100th anniversary celebration of C.S. Lewis, and indeed many people have said that Dr. Kreeft's writings remind them of C.S. Lewis's. Uh, I would agree. Like Lewis, Dr. Kreeft attempts and succeeds wonderfully at making the complicated simple, at explaining some very big things to little people like me. And for that, I have to say I'm very grateful. Uh, I also have to admit that even though uh, I'm of Greek descent, I've always had some difficulty with philosophy. Uh, (laughs) See, now that wasn't even meant to be a joke, you see. What's the story with that? If the whole joke thing comes out random, really, it doesn't even pay to try to make a joke, right? You just just talk and see what happens. Well, anyway, but the fact is I did have some problems in philosophy. I remember in my freshman year, I I took a survey course of ancient philosophy, and I got stuck at Thales. One, two, two people left. Thank you. Um... I never really got past Thales, and I can, I can guess that most of you in the room probably never did, and I, I, I'm sort of under the impression probably most of you never got to Thales. Um, anyway, for those of you who didn't know it, Thales was a pre-Socratic, and don't feel bad if you didn't know that he was a pre-Socratic, because Thales didn't know it either. Yeah, keep thinking about that. Um, all right, enough... Silliness. Our subject tonight is, for me and for most people, the ultimate big question when you're examining your life. Uh, this is a biggie, maybe the biggest. Um, tonight's subject, of course, is making sense out of suffering. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, how can you believe in a loving God with all the suffering that there is in this world? I think that's a very valid question. 
I do believe in a loving God, but that's a very valid, difficult question. It's a brilliant question. I think it's the question of questions. Uh, and therefore, it could not be more appropriate for this forum and for Dr. Kraft's attentions this evening. Uh, so I hugely look forward to hearing Dr. Kraft's thoughts on it. And please join me in welcoming Dr. Peter Kraft. Usually an introduction is just an introduction. How can I follow that? What a wonderful idea. Socrates in the city. What a wonderful place. I, too, am humbled. This is the meaning of one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't mean blessed are the cheap in spirit. It means blessed are those who have the opportunity to be in a J.P. Morgan room so that they can be humbled in spirit. Socrates in the city. Of course, New York deserves the city, but I don't deserve Socrates. However, I am here because I am from Boston. Boston has more philosophers than any other city in the world per capita. This is because philosophy is the love of wisdom. Wisdom comes through suffering. We have the Red Sox. As to Billy Buckner, the, the morning after... I asked 12 close Red Sox fans how they felt when they saw that ball roll through his legs. And they all said one of two things. Number one, ashamed. How foolish I was. I hoped. I thought it was possible. What an idiot. I forgot the curse. Or number two, happy. Suppose we had won. We'd be just like everybody else. We're special. <laughs> we are the chosen people. We are the Jews of baseball, chosen to suffer. I spent many years, months, hours in this great city. I was born in that place that Woody Allen talks about in Love and Death, northern New Jersey. Uh, there's a great dialogue between him and Diane Keaton. Uh, she says, do you believe in God? And he said, well, on a good day like this, I could believe in a universal divine providence pervading all areas of the known universe, except, of course, certain parts of northern New Jersey. <laughs> And as to uh, the problem of suffering, uh, I love the line that he speaks. I even forget the title of the movie, but he's, he's a, a Jewish father, uh, and his boy has become an atheist, and his wife blames him. So uh, she says to him, uh, tell, tell our son, uh, what, what's the problem? Well, he wants to know why there's evil. What do you mean why there's evil? Well, why there's Nazis? Tell him why there's Nazis. Woody Allen says, I should tell him why there's Nazis? I don't even know how the can opener works. Which is quite profound, and I can't do much better than that, but let me play Socrates and do things logically. First, state the question. Second, how important it is. Third, uh, the logic of the problem. And fourth, try to solve it. I titled my book, Making Sense Out of Suffering. What is sense? Sense means an explanation. Unlike the animals, we don't simply accept things as they are, unless we're pop psychologists. We, we ask, we question, we wonder. We ask especially the question, why? And when we're adults, we usually ask it only once. That's why adults are not philosophers. Little children ask it infinitely, and that's why they're philosophers. Mommy, why? Because. Why? Because. Why? They keep going. Aristotle, the master of those who know, the most commonsensical philosopher of 
the history of Western philosophy, gave us one of the ideas that no one should be allowed to die without mastering, uh, one of the ideas that is a requisite for civilization. Uh, it is the so-called theory of the four causes. All possible answers to the question why, all possible becauses, uh, fit into four categories. I assume that you are all civilized and you know this and therefore I will insult you, but I have the privilege of insulting you for 35 minutes and making you sit through a purgatory of listening to a lecture, which is always dull, so that you can get to the heaven of a longer question and answer session, which is always much more interesting, at least in my experience. Poor Socrates, the only time they made him make a speech, it cost him his life. <laughs> Number one, we can mean by why, what is the thing? Define it. What's its form, essence, nature, species? That's the formal cause. Second, we can ask, what is it made of? What's in it? What's the content of it? That's what he called the material cause. Third, we can ask, where did it come from? Who made it? That's what he calls the efficient cause. Fourth, and most important and most difficult, we can ask, what is it for? Why is it there? What purpose does it serve? That's what he called the final cause. When we talk about suffering, there's not too much difficulty about the formal cause. We know what it is. The material cause, well, it's made of different things for different people. It's made of the Yankees for Red Sox fans. It's made of the Red Sox for Yankee fans. But the efficient and the final cause are the mysteries. Where did it come from? And what good is it, if any? It's an absolutely central question. This can be seen through comparing a couple of thinkers. Let's start with Viktor Frankl, a wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the half dozen books I'd make everybody in the world read at gunpoint if I possibly could for the survival of sanity and civilization. He is a Viennese psychiatrist who survived Auschwitz, but didn't just survive it. He played Socrates in Auschwitz. He asked questions. For instance, what makes people survive? And his answer is, Freud is wrong, it's not pleasure. Adler is wrong, it's not power. Even Jung is wrong, it's not integration uh, or understanding the archetypes or anything like that. It's meaning. Those who found some meaning in their suffering survived, even though all the other indications predicted that they wouldn't. And those who didn't, didn't. He writes, to live is to suffer. Therefore, if life has meaning, suffering has meaning too. That seems to me to be utterly logical. The corollary is that if suffering does not have meaning, then life does not have meaning, because to live is to suffer. He observed that different people had different answers to their question. Why are we suffering this absurd and agonizing thing? But all the answers had one thing in common. They all turned a corner from asking the question, life, what is your meaning, to realizing that life was questioning them by name. What is your meaning? And they could only answer the question by action, not just by thought. And those who believed in a God behind life asked the same question of God. God, why me? What are you doing? Why? And those that turned the corner realized that God was questioning them, which is exactly what happened to Job. When God showed up, he didn't give answers. He gave questions. How Socratic God is. A second thinker who takes suffering very, very seriously is Buddha, one of the greatest psychologists of all time. He based an entire, well, we can't quite call it religion. We can't quite call it philosophy. Uh, Buddhists don't quite 
find familiarity or comfort in those two terms, but he based his entire religion philosophy system upon four noble truths, the first of which is to live is to suffer. Uh, the trauma of birth, the trauma of disappointment, the trauma of pain, the trauma of death. Life is trauma. His whole religion, if you want to call it that, is geared towards salvation from suffering. And his startlingly simple diagnosis is that to end suffering, you must end its cause. And its cause is egotism or selfish desire. But in his psychology, the ego or ego consciousness and egotism are inseparable. And therefore, you must see through the ego as an illusion and transform consciousness. Let's contrast Buddha to Christ. He, too, takes suffering very seriously and claims that he comes to address this problem. But his problem, uh, his solution, like Frankel's, is more a deed than a thought, like Buddha's. And contrasting to Buddha, his way is a way into suffering, not out of it. He too claims to be a way of salvation, but the problem for him is not so much suffering, but sin. It's a different sort of thing. And that has something or other, vaguely, philosophers like to be vague at first, uh, before they hone in on exact definitions, that has something to do with the whole moral order. Which brings us back to Socrates. Socrates famously taught in the Gorgias that it is better to suffer evil than to do it. In other words, suffering isn't so bad, sin is worse. It is much worse to do evil than to suffer it. That sounds hopelessly idealistic. If you had the choice between doing something a little wicked, let's say cheating the IRS and your income tax, or being tortured, roasted over a barbecue spit for 13 hours straight. Uh, unless you're very unusual, I can predict what you would choose. What in the world could he possibly have meant by saying it is better to suffer evil than to do it? Well, Socrates had this notion that at the essence of a person was this thing called the soul or the self, rather than just the body. And he taught almost with his last words that no evil can ever happen to a good man, whether in this life or in the next. A very strange thing to say, because clearly he is a good man, and he has just been unjustly condemned, misunderstood, condemned to die, put into prison, and his life is taken from him. That's a, as bad a thing as we can do to people. Uh, so what could he mean by no evil could happen to a good man? He's in the middle of evil happening to a good man, and he says it doesn't really happen. To the question, why do bad things happen to good people, Socrates' answer is, they never do. What in the world could he mean by that? It sounds absurd. Well, a person is the soul. And evil never happens to the soul. It happens to the body. You know that two-word bumper sticker that summarizes all of human history with such eloquence. It happens. By the way, did you know where that came from? There's a real story behind that. Sometime in the 60s, there was a farmer walking across a cornfield in Kansas, minding his own business. It was a nice June day. Out of the sky came something that crashed into his head, blew his brains out, and killed him. It was a two-foot square of frozen detrius, which had worked its way loose from an airliner toilet, which was rusty. I can just imagine that family tradition. 
Uh, Mommy, how did Grandpa die? Well, you know, kid, it happens. <laughs> but that only happens to the body. It doesn't happen to the soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh, great evil can be done to the soul, indeed, but I am the agent of it. I am the agent and responsible for folly and vice, not you. Once Socrates realized that, he could die with a smile. Jesus said something a bit similar, although as a Jew, Jesus takes the body much more seriously because it's part of the image of God and God created it and he doesn't have this dualism that the Greeks have between body and soul, but he too said, which seems to me to be the single most practical sentence ever uttered in the history of the world, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own self? None of the aforementioned remarks are meant to be a solution to the problem of suffering. They're meant to hone in on its centrality. There's two parts or two forms to the problem of suffering. One is practical, one's theoretical. The practical one is what can we do about it? Uh, and we have come up with a number of answers, all of which are inadequate, for example, uh, in civilization and its discontents, Sigmund Freud raises the wonderful question, why, now that we have become gods, aren't we happy? He says we don't need God or gods anymore because we've got technology. Technology has attained the wishful thinking that uh, produced religion. We'd like to be above uh, the thunder and lightning, knowing it and controlling it like Zeus. Instead, we cower in superstitious fear in, in caves, thinking that the thunderstorm is the wrath of an angry god. Well, we've become god, so we need not fear. Uh, we are Mercury, sending messages through space at will. Uh, since we have become god, since these natural human desires have been attained, we certainly should be happier, because happiness is the fundamental desire. But we're not. The more civilized we are, the more happy we are? Oh, no, not at all. Freud even toys for a while with Rousseau's notion that the more civilized we are, the more unhappy we are, and that it would be happier to go back to being a noble savage, which, of course, is impossible. It's a great question, and Freud confesses, honestly, as a good scientist, that he doesn't know the answer to it. So, practically speaking... We have not come up with an answer to the problem of suffering. The only thing we can do about suffering is to live through it. To live is to suffer. So let's look at the theoretical problem, the logic of the problem. Why must we suffer? Explain it. Maybe you can't solve it, but at least let's explain it. It makes a difference whether God is thrown into the equation. Suppose you're a Marxist. What's the cause of suffering? Well, inadequate social structures, uh, class conflict. What can be done about it? Well, they can be modified, and something like a heaven on earth can be attained by a bloody revolution, uh, but you still have to die, and you still got pain nerves all over your body. Theoretically, the problem comes in much greater if you believe in God. I mean, if suffering just happens, well, then it just happens. But if the whole of ourselves and our lives and our universe is a design, a deliberate design, not an accident, 
a novel written by God. Why does he write such a lousy novel? Thus, Job, the classic sufferer and the classic philosopher in suffering, would not have nearly the passion, including the intellectual passion, if he didn't have God to get angry at. Perhaps one of the things God wants us to do is to get angry at him because that makes us like Socrates. It makes us ask questions. I don't think God likes pop psychologists that tell you, accept yourself as you are. In other words, be a vegetable. I have never found an atheist who can state the problem of evil with the logical cogency and force and personal passion of a theist. The most sympathetic case for atheism in the history of the world, it seems to me, has been made by one of the great theistic writers, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Ivan Karamazov is the most persuasive atheist in, in the world's literature. I tell my students, if, you, if your faith is weak and you're afraid to lose it, don't read the Brothers Karamazov. I often teach philosophy of religion, and I play Socrates, and I try to get the class to dialogue, and I try to divide them into two groups, believers and unbelievers, or believers and skeptics, or strong believers and weak believers. And once I get the two groups, I say, now we're going to dialogue about whether there's a God. But those of you who classify yourself as believers, you're going to have to argue for atheism. And you who classify yourselves as unbelievers, you're going to have to argue for theism. And they say, that's, that's ridiculous. I say, no, it isn't. If you don't understand the other position, you can't really argue against it. I've done this three or four times. It's always turned out exactly the same way. There's no discernible difference in the intelligence level between the atheist and the theists. But the atheists always make a ridiculously weak case for theism. And the theists always make a knock them down drag them out case for atheism. And it's always based on the problem of evil, by far the strongest argument for atheism. So after that happens, and the students are kind of surprised, I asked, why did that happen? And then the real argument begins. The atheists who were pretending to be theists said, well, you had us argue for Santa Claus. It was a ridiculous position that you gave us. And the theists who were pretending to be atheists said, no, we see both sides. You don't. We see your best arguments. You saw our weakest ones. And then they argue about that. Well, let me give you the strongest argument for atheism that I know based on the problem of suffering. Emotionally, it's something like Ivan Karamazov. But intellectually, since being almost a New Yorker, I'm impatient, and I like philosophers who can say much in few words. Uh, I love Thomas Aquinas, who can, in a single paragraph, write as much as modern theologians would take a lifetime to write. Here is his incredibly succinct uh, formulation of the problem of evil. If one of two contraries is infinite, the other is completely destroyed. But God means infinite goodness. Therefore, if God existed, there would be no evil discoverable anywhere. But there is evil. Therefore, God does not exist. It's a very powerful argument. How do you answer it? Atheists and agnostics also want an answer to suffering, although God is not in their equation. So the question of suffering is universal, but it's worse for a theist. I will try to give you six answers, none of which is original. Three of them come from natural reason, 
philosophical reasoning without any reliance on religion or divine revelation, and three of them do come from uh, religion or divine revelation. Uh, the first answer, which is basically the answer of ancient Stoicism, is that we are finite creatures. We have limits. We have desires which are not going to be satisfied. So we have a choice of either adding to our inevitable frustration or not. Here you are in the dentist chair, and the Novocaine hasn't taken. And the dentist says, we're doing root canal work, so you have to tell me where the pain is. There's no alternative. What choice do you have? Well, you have a choice between enduring the physical pain and rebelling against it. If you rebel against it, you add psychological pain and terror and fear and make the pain worse. So why not be a Stoic and just accept it? Red Sox fans understand that. So one possible explanation for suffering is we are animals. We are finite creatures. A second answer that comes from an older source, namely all the myths, just about all the myths of all the cultures of the world, is that something happened way back when, before history, Things aren't supposed to be like this. Once upon a time, Adam and Eve ate an apple. Once upon a time, Pandora opened a box. Once upon a time, the magic bird that was supposed to drop the magic berry of heavenly happiness into the mouth of primal man fell in love with himself and swallowed the berry. There are various versions of the story, but it's astonishing how almost every culture has some myth of paradise lost. Now, that doesn't mean it's true. But it does mean that it's in the collective unconscious. And to say that there's no truth in it at all is to be a snob. This is my fundamental argument against atheism, by the way. Uh, if atheism is true, then the incredibly small minority of human beings, most of which are concentrated in our uprooted society, are the only ones who are wise. And everyone else is living their lives with a fundamental illusion at the center, exactly like Jimmy Stewart in Harvey. He believes in this 13-foot-high invisible rabbit, even though he's in his 40s. Well, that's a pretty grim view of humanity. It doesn't prove anything, but it at least ought to give you a bit of pause. This universal myth that our present situation is unnatural seems to correspond to our present psychological data. That is, we all have a lover's quarrel with the world. We can't obey the advice of our pop psychologists to accept ourselves as we are and accept the world as it is. We just can't do it if we're human. Animals can. There's a perfect ecological relationship between the animal's instinctive desires and its environment. What they want, they can get. There's one thing that we want that nobody in the world has ever gotten, complete happiness. It's our glory that we can rise to the dignity of despair. Thus a nihilistic existentialist like Nietzsche is more noble than a nice pop psychologist. He rises to this dignity of despair. A third answer, very traditional to why we suffer, comes from Greeks and Red Sox fans. It makes us wise. To quote Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, the man who has not suffered, what could he possibly know anyway? Or to quote Aeschylus, Hour by hour, minute by minute, pain drips upon the heart. And against our will and even in our own despite comes wisdom from the awful grace of the gods. If wisdom is more important than pleasure, then it's a good deal. 
And if we're so foolish that we wouldn't voluntarily make that deal, then how wise of the gods, whoever they are, to force us to that deal. While you're suffering, you don't want to make the deal. After you're finished, you're glad. Think of the hardest thing you ever did or the biggest pain you ever had. Are you glad now that you have gone through that? Oh, yes. To quote Nietzsche again, whatever does not kill me makes me stronger. But of course, while you're there, you don't think that. Well, suppose you throw God into the package. What's God's answer to the problem of suffering when he finally appears and gives Job, the archetypal sufferer, his answer? Job asks all sorts of great questions. And God doesn't answer a single one of them. He says, basically, if I may summarize his great rhetoric in a few much less great words, hush, child, you couldn't possibly understand. Who do you think you are anyway? I'm the author. You're the character. And after the first shock, we realize that makes immense sense. If, in fact, we are characters in a story written by a transcendent author, then for us to understand each syllable of this mysterious play would refute the hypothesis that there is a transcendent author. He would no longer be transcendent. He would just be us or a projection of us. In other words, it's utterly rational that life be irrational. Or, to use another argument, probably the most difficult verse in the whole Bible to believe, uh, the most astonishing claim, the one that, like Socrates' almost last words, seems ridiculously wrong, is Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, come on, you've got to be kidding. Well, wait a minute. Let's deduce that from three premises. And almost anyone except an atheist will accept these three premises. Number one, uh, God is omnipotent. If God's weak, there's no God. Number two, God is omniscient. He knows everything. If he's stupid, he's, there's no God. Uh, number four, uh, number three, rather, God is all good. If he's wicked and cruel, he's not God. Well, if he's omniscient, he knows exactly what we need. If he's omnipotent, he can supply it. And if he's all good, he does. And therefore, as a logical deduction from those three premises, we must need everything that we get. It certainly doesn't seem that way. Once in a while, we see with Greek wisdom how suffering produces wisdom in us, and we can look back on our lives and say, I'm glad I went through that. But much of the time, we can't which is exactly what we would expect on the hypothesis that there is such a God. So far from refuting the existence of God, suffering that seems irrational and cannot be explained fits that hypothesis. It also fits the hypothesis of atheism. Thus, you are left free to choose. And you are left to do something like Pascal's wager. Since the theoretical arguments are inconclusive, or if you think the theoretical arguments are inconclusive, then let's use a practical argument. What can you gain and what can you lose? You can gain nothing by atheism. Maybe you're right, but once you're dead, you're dead, and there's no reward. What can you gain by theism? Well, maybe you'll gain nothing. If it's false, there's no life after death, no rewards and no punishments. But if it's true, you gain everything and lose nothing. 
That's not a very high and holy argument, but it's an utterly rational one, as anyone knows who's ever played poker. But let me offer three more specifically religious arguments that depend upon faith in the supernatural and in a divine revelation. One coming from faith, one from hope, one from love. One answer to why we suffer is basically God's answer to Job, trust me. An invitation to trust. What parents give to children. Uh, you're a child. You can't understand, but you can love. You can trust. You don't have to, but you can. Try it. You'll like it. That's basically Jesus' first version of the gospel, the old Alka-Seltzer commercial. Try it. You'll like it. If not, there's Alka-Seltzer. Look at his first words in John's gospel. Come and see. What an open-minded invitation. Secondly, hope. Faith directed towards the future. Suppose that this is just a womb. Suppose the entire universe is a very small thing. When you were in the womb, you probably thought that was the whole universe. It was enormous. Is there life after birth? Maybe so, maybe not. You found out that there was. And it's much bigger. Well, maybe that'll happen again when you die. In which case, you couldn't possibly understand the meaning of suffering here. This is only the womb. When you were a little fetus, you probably said, why have I got feet? Why am I kicking? There's no sidewalks. <laughs> but now you know. <laughs> so probably 99% of what we do here is preparation for the next life, which we can understand about as well as our cats and dogs can understand our life. It is possible to believe the astonishing claim of St. Teresa of Avila, who suffered a lot and asked God uh, about it and uh, got some answers. And she said, the most horrible life on earth, filled with the most atrocious sufferings, will be seen from the viewpoint of heaven to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Well, if that's not true, then heaven's not heaven. Finally, the deepest answer of all, love. On a human level, solidarity with the sufferers. If you really love somebody, what's the fundamental thing you want? What's the aim of love? True, deep, complete human love. Unity, intimacy, closeness. Philanthropy, which is a genuine form of love, but not the most intimate form, wants to aid and benefit the other person, including uh, giving them more happiness and less unhappiness, less suffering. But if you're more than a philanthropist, if you're a lover, then if your beloved is suffering, you want to be with them in the suffering because you want to be with them everywhere. Well, according to Christianity, God acted that way. When he came to earth to solve the problem of suffering, he didn't give us a technique for getting out of it. He didn't give us a philosophical or mystical explanation of it. He invited us to participate in it because he participated in ours. I think the most moving divine answer to the problem of suffering is the shortest verse in the Bible. When Jesus' close friend Lazarus died, he went to the tomb and the words are, Jesus wept. And the next verse says, everybody said, see how he loved him. That shows us what God thinks of our suffering. 
for some strange reason, we tend to think of God as an absentee landlord, uh, cold and indifferent with some philosophical or mystical answer to the problem of suffering. And from afar, he says, you must go through this. But according to the New Testament, it's not like that at all. God is intimately present in the worst sufferings. Where was God in the Holocaust? He was in the gas chambers. He is in every little baby who suffers. He is in the victim. He identifies with the victimized and never the victimizer. That doesn't solve the philosophical problem, but it certainly solves the emotional problem. I don't see how it's possible to love a God who doesn't identify totally with human suffering, because that's not a lover. Suppose your car is stalled in the middle of the night in weather like this, and you don't know how to fix it, and there's no tow truck. What you'd like, above all, is to have a cell phone with you and to get a taxi or to get a tow truck. You can't. Let's say the only person you can call is your brother-in-law, who lives nearby, and he comes, uh, and he doesn't know about cars either, and he doesn't have a cell phone, and he doesn't have a tow truck, so what does he do? He stays with you in the car all night, and then in the morning you're, you're freed. Aren't you much more grateful to him than even to a tow truck? So even when God doesn't immediately tow us out of our suffering, the fact that he's with us in it is at least the most impressive and satisfying answer to the problem of suffering that I know. And therefore, God doesn't give us a lot of words to answer the problem of suffering. According to Christianity, he gives us a single word, and his name is Jesus. And that's 35 minutes, and now you can ask questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Kraft. We are going to take questions. There are one, two, three microphones, actually four, but you can't use this one. And we're going to, uh, we have time probably for a lot of questions. We don't have any time for monologues, so please frame the question in your mind. Uh, before, forgive me, but it's, it's been a problem in the past. Uh, frame the question in your mind before you um, ask it, and we'll, uh, we can do this probably for a half an hour or so. So let's see how it goes. Anybody uh, at all, anybody willing to step up to a microphone? If you can... Shout from where you are. Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Dr. Crave, thank you for your talk. Um, Romans 8.28 uh, promises that God will work for the good of, it would seem, he's saying, for believers, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How should we regard suffering in the lives of people who are ostensibly good people by the world's standards but who are not believers? I don't know because we don't know who are the chosen and who are not. I don't think we can make that judgment. We haven't the faintest idea. Not even relatively. When the disciples asked Jesus, are many saved? He said, strive to enter in. Mind your own business. So we're told, we're told about our path. We're not told about anyone else's. When the travel agent tells you how to get to Florida, she doesn't tell you how to avoid the swamps in Georgia. She tells you how to go to the beaches. Yeah. Um, I, I don't mean to imply that we necessarily know who are the saved and who are not, but we do know that there are some who are not saved. Mm. How should we regard suffering in their lives? I don't think we have any data about that. I don't have any answer. We haven't been told, as far as I know. We have been told the astonishing thing that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, that's hard to believe 
I love Thornton Wilder's novel, The Bridge of San Luis Rey. It's about a Franciscan priest, Brother Juniper, who's losing his faith. He's a scientist, and he asks God for some clues, just some clues. Life is a mysterious tapestry, he says. I don't expect to see the, the front side where God is weaving it, but some loose threads in the back side, uh, they should make at least some sense. Well, one day he reads in the paper that a, a rope bridge over this gorge has uh, parted and five young people have fallen to their untimely deaths, and he's scandalized. He said, this makes no sense at all. So he makes a scientific investigation of their lives. He interviews family members and reads diaries and collects clues, and the result of his investigation is, he thinks, he gets just enough clues to believe. So he concludes with a, a memorable sentence, uh, some say that to the gods we are like flies swatted idly by boys on a summer's day. Others say that not a single hair ever falls from the head to the ground without the will of the Heavenly Father. And both are possible choices. No, no. How can you be really happy if you've never suffered? You're a spoiled kid. You appreciate nothing. We appreciate things only by contrast. I just came from Hawaii. There was a conference there, International Conference on Arts and Humanity. I thought it was a real con conference. There were 1,687 people who went to that conference. They all delivered papers to about two or three people, and the universities paid their way. It was just a scam to get to Hawaii. All right. <laughs> I'm a surfer, Hawaii is Mecca to me, but I didn't really deep down enjoy myself. Why not? Be I guess because I'm a New England puritanical Calvinistic Red Sox fan. There's no suffering out there. Things are so perfect. I couldn't live there. I would not appreciate the summer without the winter. You have to live through this kind of winter to, to appreciate the summer. And if we never died, we wouldn't appreciate life. It's a fascinating book written about 20 years ago called The Immortality Factor by a Swedish journalist, Osborne Siegerberg. He first interviewed geneticists about whether artificial immortality was theoretically possible, and most of them said yes, and it'll come in two or three hundred years. Most scientific predictions, by the way, are much too long. It'll probably come much earlier than that. That's another story. Then he looked at the old myths about immortality and the science fiction stories. And both the old myths and the modern science fiction stories almost all said this would be horrible. This would be the worst thing conceivable. The myth of Tithonius the Greek, or the wandering Jew, or the flying Dutchman, or the children's book Tuck Everlasting. Uh, without death, life becomes meaningless. Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. Then he went to the psychologists and asked what would happen. And most of them said, oh, this would be wonderful end of suffering, end of fear, we'd have utopia on earth. He concluded that the myths were perhaps wiser than the psychologists. So I guess we need suffering because we're very stupid. And if you're very stupid, you have to have your nose rubbed in something and you appreciate something only by its contrast. I'm, I'm continually impressed by how stupid I am. Uh, one of the doctrines of Christianity that's the most unpopular is original sin. But I have no difficulty at all believing that because I know from my own experience that whenever I sin, I suffer. But I keep sinning. Uh, I wake up in the morning 
And I get assaulted by a thousand little soldiers sticking pins into my brain, thinking, saying, think about this, think about this, worry about this, worry about this. And if I kill them ruthlessly and give God a little bit of time in the morning, I'm happy and everything happens well in the day. And if I don't, it doesn't. I don't do it. I'm insane. <laughs> we all are. So we need to be slapped around a bit, I guess. You would have to address their problem, which is the belief that there is something that is unforgiven. If God is totally good, he is not Scrooge. He does not forgive some things. He forgives all things. The only possible sin that cannot be forgiven is not accepting forgiveness, which is why in traditional Christian theology, pride is the worst of sins. I'm too good to be forgiven. There's nothing to forgive. Oh, oh, that's a very serious problem, yes. I suppose the only refuge there would be the belief that since God forgives them, they have to forgive themselves. In other words, it can't be just a horizontal thing because that's blocked very often. But if both of the horizontal members are connected vertically then in a way that I don't think we usually understand, there can be a reconciliation that we don't usually see. That's rather mystical, I guess, but I think that works even in time. Since God's eternal, he can change the past. But we, don't, we can't see that, we're in time. Uh, doctor, thank you for coming tonight. I found it very interesting. Um, you mentioned about Aquinas and, you know, the, as I recall, a really practical Aristotelian type of thinker. Um, how would you compare his views that you gave tonight to uh, Augustine, who always appeared to be, be more Socratic and, you know, when you said faith, hope, and love it? I mean, how would you compare the two views uh, on evil, particularly in suffering? In his encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, uh, the Pope speaks of faith and reason as the two wings of the, uh, the dove, of the bird, of the human soul. Well, I would say within the intellect, Aquinas and Augustine are the two wings because Augustine is a wonderfully passionate thinker. There's nothing like the Confessions. Uh, uh, a heart and a mind working at fever pitch together. I love the medieval statuary of Augustine. It always shows in one hand an open book, in the other an, uh, a burning heart. Aquinas, on the other hand, is a perfectly limpidly clear light, a perfect scientist. Uh, so Augustine is, well, you might say, the mole burrowing through the deep mysteries, whereas Aquinas is the eagle soaring over it all and making a map. And together they give you a, a great picture. Uh, Aquinas' answer to that problem that he formulates, by the way, is wonderfully Augustinian in the sense that it's dramatic. It's not just an abstract philosophical concept. Uh, the problem is how can there be God if there is evil? If one of two contraries is infinite, the other is destroyed, God is infinite goodness. If there were God, there would be no evil. There is evil, therefore there is no God. His answer is, and he gets it from Augustine. Uh, as Augustine says, God would not allow any evil. doesn't do it, he allows it 
through human free will, God would not allow any evil unless his wisdom and power were such as to bring out of it an even greater good. It's the fairy tale answer. We're not yet in the old lived happily ever after. We're struggling to it. Yeah. Uh, doctor, thank you very much for your, for your thoughts this evening. Um, I think one of the most difficult problems that uh, many of us have in dealing with the problem, problems of suffering is not how we deal with them individually, but how other, deal, how other people deal with suffering as we perceive it. In the, um, in the movie that now is uh, certainly drawing an awful lot of comment, The Hours, at the end of the film, uh, one of the lead characters uh, describes her choice uh, that has to do with leaving her children uh, with, a, with a very familiar phrase. She said, um, and of course in the movie you, you really don't, never understand she's having a problem with this child. It's only re revealed at the end. She said, uh, and the movie is a, it's about suicide if you haven't seen it. Um, One of the Hollywood's usually Yeah, we won't give you the ones, ending. Yeah, yeah. No, this is not the ending. The, the ending is much more dramatic than this. It's just a piece of it. She says, um, I chose to leave because I chose life. Now, that is not ordinarily the application of that phrase, that a mother would leave her children in order to choose life. There really is a whole lot more to the film if you haven't seen it. But I was, I was just absolutely struck by the application of that phrase to what, to me, on the surface of it, would be <clears throat> someone struggling to overcome evil the very bad choice. I think it's a fake. <clears throat> I haven't seen the movie, mm -hmm. but her mistake is she's thinking only about her own life. Life is like a tree, and it's got many branches, many leaves, many roots. It's one. Mm -hmm. The idea of human solidarity in both sin and in suffering is rather hard for us uprooted over self-conscious individualists to understand, but almost any ancient people understands it better than we do. Mm -hmm. You can't really be happy and fulfilled and alive without uh, those to whom you are deeply connected being the same. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hello. Hi, how are you? Okay. Um, I thought I'd uh, try a question that would be up your alley. I see you wrote a book on uh, Socrates and Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to the Greeks. It is foolishness. Where is the debater of this age? Where is the disputer? In the wisdom of God, he showed that the thoughts of this age were useless and worthless. But he does maintain that the Greeks... Um, he says we preach Christ crucified to the Greeks foolishness so apparently Paul had some experience of talking to Greeks and as he talked to them they said you're a fool now what is it about Greek thinking that makes Paul a fool in their eyes most people are fools the percentage of non-fools is very small <laughs> Everywhere. I believe Paul said that, wrote that epistle to the Corinthians after he had visited Athens. And in Acts 16 or 17, 17, 17 he goes to Mars Hill where Socrates actually philosophized. Uh, 
and uh, addressed the philosophers. They said, uh, what is this strange saying? So now he has the opportunity to talk to philosophers. Uh, Athens and Jerusalem are coming together. Well, I'm told, I've never been to Athens, that uh, uh, Mars Hill is at the top of a long road called the Way of the Gods, and that there were statues to all the gods, not just Greek gods, but gods of, of many other cultures, because people would come to Athens on pilgrimage and make sacrifices to their many gods. So Paul refers to them in the part, first part of his sermon to the Athenians. He says, I, as I was walking up this road, I, I noticed that you are very religious. But that's sarcastic because the verse before that said his heart burned within them, him at the idolatry. So you expect he's going to say something like he said to the Corinthians, what fools you are. Astonishingly, he says, but one of these statues I noticed was dedicated to the unknown God. It doesn't say statues, inscriptions. Now Socrates was in fact a stonecutter. And there were two kinds of stonemasons in ancient Greece. One just cut altars and letters, which was easy. And then there were the sculptors who had to do rounded human figures and not many people could do that. Socrates couldn't do that. If you could do that, you got rich. Socrates was very poor. So Socrates cut things like altar pieces and inscriptions. And as you know, if you read any of Socrates, you know that he worshiped the unknown God and he would not name this God and he lost his life because he couldn't name him, Zeus or Apollo or any of the gods of the state. So it may be that Socrates literally cut this very altar piece that Paul refers to, to the unknown God. And what does Paul say about it? The God that you are already worshiping ignorantly, I will now declare to you. I think that's the other side of the foolishness. Yes, there's Greek foolishness, but Socrates is not a fool because he knows that he's a fool. He will not name the God. He knows that he doesn't know. He's searching. And according to rather high authority, those who seek, find. I would be very surprised not to find Socrates in heaven. Well, I, I think that the Apostle Paul ends 1 Corinthians chapter 1 by saying, of him we are in Christ Jesus. That is, it's God's choice who goes to heaven. Mm -hmm. And so, it's also ours. It's not exclusive. Well, that's true. That's the paradox of predestination and free will, both of which are pretty clearly taught. And that's the paradox of every great novel. Tell, show me one novel without predestination by the author. Show me one novel without free will well, by the character. I don't understand. It seems to me that you're I don't either. in a self-contradiction. It looks like it. One, hold on, hold on. On the one hand, you're saying that Socrates is in heaven. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul says the debaters of this age did not know God. Now, are you saying that people who do not know God are going to heaven? No, but I don't think Socrates is one of those people. I don't think he was a mere debater. That sounds like the sophists. Well, he he was a seeker. Say, Paul does say the Greeks have called me a fool. Uh, but the Greeks is a, a vague term, like the Jews. And to stereotype a whole people well, or a whole well, race is I silly. I guess to make it a long story short, I would think you have to introduce the question of regeneration. Yes, but my very conservative and traditional belief that Jesus is not just a human being, but the Logos, the eternal second person of the Trinity, uh, justifies my rather liberal expectation that a lot of non-Christians will be in heaven because John says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 9, the Logos enlightens everyone who comes into the world. So even though Jesus is the universal Savior, uh, you don't have to know him in his 33 year-long, six-foot-high Jewish carpenter body. There are other ways to know him. And I, maybe Socrates I, did. I wish I could agree with you, but I don't. All right, some <laughs> other day. <laughs>
My question has to do with the nature of God. Um, the scripture said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. How do you defend to someone when they say, how can a good and loving God, how can he hate? I don't know Hebrew, but I would bet on the fact that the word hate there means the same thing that the Greek word for hate means in one of Jesus' strange sayings, unless you hate your father and your mother, you cannot be my disciple. Hate means turn your back on when necessary. Put second rather than first. So it's not that God was burning with hatred for Esau because Esau didn't exist yet. This is talking about predestination before they were even born. God said Esau is going to be the villain, Jacob is going to be the hero. Like a novelist. That doesn't mean they don't have free will. The novelist gives them the free will to choose heroism or villainy. But he knows what they're going to choose. Dr. Grave, I'm here. Where are you? Ah. Uh, Over here. there. Hi. Sorry. First of all, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, my question is this. Once in a philosophy class, I heard the phrase, the statement that evil is not part of creation, but it's the absence of good or goodness. I was wondering, first of all, if you could expand on that. And secondly, if you could give me some background of um, who, where it originated, stated in that concrete manner. Thank you. That's probably referring to a great discovery Augustine made. He talks about it in the Confessions. He couldn't solve the problem of evil, so he became a Manichee for 11 years. The Manichees believed that evil was explained by the fact that there's an evil God and a good God, and they're equal, and they're fighting, uh, and nobody's winning forever. And the evil God made matter. And the good God wants to liberate you from matter into spirituality. Uh, he never felt right about Manichaeism. Uh, and he was always looking for a better answer. And he finally got one. The realization that since God is totally good, and since everything that exists that's made of matter is a creature of God, therefore all matter is good. Ens est bonum. Being as such is good. Well, then what is evil? Evil's not a thing. It's not stuff. It's neither God nor a creature. It's not a being. In that sense, it's non-being. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it's not real. Blindness is not a third eye, and blindness is not the cataract that causes it. That's the cause. Blindness is the absence of a good thing, sight. Not just absence, but privation. Uh, this microphone doesn't have sight, but that's not evil for it. It's not supposed to. But a person's eye is supposed to have it. So the privation of good being in, a, in something that's supposed to have it is the answer to what kind of stuff does evil have? What's the metaphysics of evil? What's the being of evil? That's the answer to an abstract question. It's not the answer to the concrete question, is evil real for me? How does it appear in my life? That's a different question entirely. So it's very important to keep those two unconfused. Otherwise, uh, Augustine sounds like a cockeyed optimist. Oh, evil isn't real. Don't worry about it. He was deeply sensitive to it. Thank you, uh, thank you Doctor. Um, my question is in two parts. The first one is this. Uh, James said, count it all joy when you face diverse temptation because the trial of your faith work at patience. Now, how do we you know, look or rationalize every attempt by man to alleviate you know, human suffering, knowing that you know, suffering is part of you know, what life is all about? Then the second part of the question is, now, 
for example, I'm from originally from Africa, and we know that suffering is not something that man actually created, you know, himself. Now, should we now live in a state of helpless? I mean, helplessness. In other words, not trying to alleviate those problems. The practical answer to that question is very clear. Certainly, if you're a Christian, Jesus healed people from diseases and sufferings, had great compassion and pity on suffering. He was completely human. He showed us not just who God was, but who the ideal man was. So the stoic attitude of indifference to suffering or the withdrawn attitude or even the Buddhist attitude of rising above it by being insensitive to it, by transforming your consciousness, that's definitely not the Christian answer to suffering. But your first question is a deep paradox. On the one hand, suffering is blessed. Count it all joy when you go through manifold tribulations. On the other hand, we're supposed to relieve it. Like poverty. Blessed are the poor, and yet the relief of poverty is one of the commandments of Christianity. And death, which is the fishnet that catches all the fish of poverty and every other suffering in itself. Uh, death is the worst thing. It's the last enemy. Jesus comes to conquer it through resurrection. On the other hand, death is glorious. There's an old oratorio that has this hauntingly beautiful line, Thou hast made death glorious and triumphant, for through its portals we enter into the presence of the living God. So somehow or other, in this strange drama, the worst things uh, are used as the best things. Even morally, the worst sin ever committed, the most horrible atrocity ever perpetrated in the history of the world, was the murder of God. And Christians celebrate this as Good Friday and the cause of their salvation. Very strange. Like life. I thank you also for sharing your thoughts with us this evening. I had really two questions that maybe you could expound on a little bit. The first is, isn't there a difference between suffering and evil? Mm-hmm. And the second is, wouldn't it be the case that Evil is either the opinion of an infinite and perfect God or just every individual's random opinion. Without God, evil can't really exist. And if somebody speaks of evil, it has to be from the context of an almighty and perfect God. Well, on the first first question, you're clearer than I was, and I accept your correction. On the second question, I'm clearer than you were, and I hope you accept my correction. First of all, I've been talking so much about suffering that I've virtually identified it with evil, and that's a mistake. There's the evil that you do and the evil that you suffer, and the evil that you do is much worse. Uh, the evil that you do is, broadly speaking, sin. Uh, that is evil to yourself, your character, your soul. Suffering is just evil to your body. That's the distinction Socrates played on when he said no evil can happen to a good man. But on the other question, evil is not an opinion. Evil is not a point of view. Evil is not a, a psychological perspective. Evil is real. It's not a thing, but it's real. We can make mistakes about it. We argue about it. The fact that everybody argues about good and evil, that's good. No, it's evil, means that we act as if we believe that it were objectively real and not just a matter of opinion. We don't argue about mere opinions. Oh, we can, but not really. You know, I love the Red Sox, you love the Yankees. We don't argue about that. We argue about facts. Will the Red Sox ever win a single World Series until the end of the world? We who are wise know the answer is no, they are under a curse. (laughs) But those who are unwise might say yes. So what's true and false 
has to have reference to an objective truth. But a mere opinion or point of view, well, that's not just true or false. Well, evil is not just a point of view. Evil is not subjective. If you believe that evil is subjective, point of view, well, I don't think most New Yorkers believe that anymore after 9-11. In the babble of voices that we heard after that horrendous event, one voice was conspicuously silent, psychobabble. Thank you for your, for your talk and your willingness to address questions, Dr. Kreeft. I want to come at you from a ruthlessly pragmatic angle. Wonderful. Being a New Yorker. Pascal's bet works for me, okay? Except, and this is something Pascal addressed. He said, living by faith will not damage your life. You will live a better life. You will practice the virtues. You will live a nobler life and, in the end, a happier life. Therefore, it, it's not really such a risk. But I read in other Christian writers like you know, Ignatius in his uh, Three Degrees of Humility. The first one is the willingness to renounce mortal sin for the sake of salvation. And, you know, that's acceptable. You know. <laughs> the second one, an indifference towards suffering, happy life or sad life, long life or a short life, so long as you're doing the will of God. Eh, getting queasy here. Third level of humility is to actively prefer a short, unhappy life because it's more similar to Jesus' life on earth. Now, it seems to me that if your faith actually entails the third degree of humility, it actually, Pascal's bet ceases to make sense. This has been something that's been vexing me for years, so I really would appreciate your response. I think Pascal would say the bet still works in the long run. Even if you're up to this third level, uh, that means that in the long run, that is in heaven, you will have more joy. You have hollowed out your soul by these ascetical exercises so much that you can see and appreciate and enjoy more of God than others can. So it's worth it even in the long run. Is it, it's worth it even on earth? What I'm saying is... It, yes, even okay. on earth. Okay. Because the saints are terribly happy. Uh, the two groups of people that haunt my memory as the two groups of people that stand out as incredibly happy, truly happy, deeply happy, are the two most ascetical groups that I know. One is a group of Carmelite nuns in Danvers, Massachusetts, who live in almost perpetual silence. I was asked to give a talk to them. They gave a talk to me by their silence. And most of all, Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity. They have a, a, a house in Roxbury, which is the worst slum of Boston, and they pick up the pieces of the worst neighborhood and the worst families, and they just do what they can. And again, I was asked to give a talk to them. And they were just radiantly happy. They get up 4 o'clock in the morning, spend two hours before the Eucharist. They each have one piece of clothing. They have almost no private property. They eat very simply. Uh, they're radiantly happy. It works. Okay, thank you. Dr. Kreeft, thanks for taking our questions. Um, I have a question I'd like to limit to evil, I guess, rather than uh, suffering. You mentioned yourself that uh, in, the, in the Bible, God doesn't give us a reason. He didn't give Job a reason. Doesn't, doesn't give us a reason or his reason for the existence of evil. Um, given that and your tremendous study and the amount of thought that you have uh, put towards the subject, have you personally found any satisfaction in, uh, in, in finding an answer for this? Uh, and if so, where? And, and if not, d does, that lead you, uh, does that lead you somewhere else? Thank you. Let me just give you a partial answer to that question. As a philosopher, I was always bothered by the book of Job. I knew it was a classic. I felt that it was a classic. But I was bothered by the fact that God didn't answer any of Job's questions. And I said, yeah, God has a right to do that, but I don't like that. 
I should. I should feel with Job. Uh, but Job cops out too easily. Yes, God, anything you say. I don't like slimy, pious worms who say, okay, anything, step on me. Uh, I guess I'm too much of a New Yorker. Uh, and Job is such a New Yorker until the end. He shakes his fist in God's face and says, you bloody butcher, how can you get away with this? I demand some explanations. And that's kind of impious, maybe, but we can identify with that. And then at the end, what a disappointment. All these great questions not answered. So I said, that's a failure of dramatic art. The character of Job changes too quickly in the end. Uh, the author of the book of Job, I thought, did to Job what Peter Jackson did to Faramir in The Two Towers, which is inexcusable. He's a hero. He's not a villain. My wife will agree with you on, on that. However, however, reading Martin Buber, I think it was I and Thou, convinced me that I was utterly wrong. Uh, Buber is commenting on God's pronouncement of judgment at the end of Job. And the three friends of Job, who are perfectly orthodox theologians, I mean, all they say in tedious repetition is, God is great and God is good, let us thank him for our food, amen. Uh, they say they utter no heresy. Uh, they're condemned. Job, on the other hand, who flirts with, with heresy and blasphemy, God, you, you're, you're an arbitrary despot, I hate you. Get off my back. Uh, Job is approved. He says, I think the words are, I am angry at you and your two friends. He says, at, who is it? Bildad the Shuhite, smallest man in the Bible. Uh, you, <laughs> for not speaking rightly about me as my servant Job has. But they spoke perfectly rightly about God and Job spoke wrongly. Wrongs is boober. Since God is the thou who can only be addressed and not expressed, since God's divinely revealed name is I am, not it is. Therefore, uh, Job, who talks to God, pleases God. And the three friends who never talk to God, they never pray, they talk about him. They don't. And then I said, you know, that's right. Suppose I was teaching a class and two of my students interrupted my lecture by breaking out into loud, animated conversation about the professor. Do you think Professor Kraft is crazy? No. Yes, he is. No, he isn't. Wait a minute. I'd say, hello, I'm here. I wouldn't be offended that they thought I was crazy. That's quite reasonable. But, but that you would talk about me in front of me without realizing that I'm here? Well, we're doing that to God all the time. God this, God this. Hi, troops. I'm here. Why don't you talk to me? That's what Job did. That's what God wants. I think that's very profound. Is, if, if I restated what you're saying then, from my understanding, are you saying that evil, you think that evil exists or possibly exists so that we'll pay better attention to, to God, so that we'll engage God? We're such fools that I have to admit that that's true. C.S. Lewis puts it in this way in The Problem of Pain. He says, uh, God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you accept a theistic framework, um, does asking why, is that tantamount to a lack of trust in God's sovereignty? Just the opposite. Well, can I, in, to, to make it practical, to give an example, one that I've wrestled with, which is Eric Little. Uh, Eric Little, as you guys know from Chariots of Fire, you know, ran, won the, the Olympic, the gold. And then what most people forget is that afterwards he left and went to, to Shangtung Compound, uh, which was another great book by Gilkey. 
uh, and he died there yeah. uh, and he suffered. And so overlaying your framework of suffering on top of that are, is all we're left with is, well, God had a greater purpose or is there another answer to that question? If you weren't deeply connected with God, you wouldn't be asking him why. If you had left him, there would be no concern. The question why, if it's asked from the heart, presupposes a relationship. It wants to add reason to faith. There's some faith there, faith not just as thought but as personal trust. And then that faith is ignorant. And since it's accompanied by love, it wants to know more. If you love somebody, you want to know more about him. So you keep asking God, why this, why that? That's very good. Jesus never once discouraged that kind of question. That's just intellectual honesty. Hi. <laughs> Dr. Crave, Com- coming from the, uh, the uh, seat of northern philosophy, Chestnut Hill and Boston, can you give us New Yorkers who experienced 9-11 some philosophical um, reference and reflection? Can you be more specific so that I can be? Well, many people have been uh, lost a chance of hope. Many people have found a chance of hope. And uh, many are still looking for that chance of hope. I think great good and great evil, great pleasure and great pain always give us a choice. We can be more wise and hopeful and good in the presence of either one. uh, Or we can be less. Let's first take great good. A wonderful thing happens. Oh, now I can relax. Everything's all right. No more questions. No, no, no. A wonderful thing happens. Where did this come from? Thanks be to God. Wow. This is a, a, a message from heaven. It's, it's, it's a pointing finger. It points beyond itself. Similarly with evil. Evil just happens. I've got a, a picture on my office wall. Maybe some of you have seen it. It happened, I think, towards the end of the 19th century in Paris. Uh, There's a two-story railroad station, and the locomotive plunged through the second story and fell down into the street. And there it is at an angle, a great big steam locomotive. And the single word on it, shit. (laughs) That's not blasphemous. It's only obscene. Uh, It's an offense against good taste, but not against good religion. Uh, that's one answer to evil, and that's counterproductive. That doesn't do any good. But on the other hand, this is evil. It shows me that evil is real. I am now wise. It shows me that I must have solidarity with my brothers and sisters in fighting it, so I become more courageous. Uh, the response in uniting uh, New York and America and even the world uh, certainly did an enormous amount of good. I won't say it did more good than the thousands of lives that were snuffed out, but evil always rebounds. Evil always has some good fruit. I think of God as something like a a French chef who uses decayed vegetables to flavor foods wonderfully. The evil always has some good purpose. Hi. 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 Thanks for your talk tonight. Um, I have a question about evil and suffering and the uh, difficulty of taking a perspective on it in a culture that's gripped with fear, uh, um, which I see America as being at present. Um, 
do you think that could at all skew a perspective that you might take on evil, on suffering? In other words, to the, to the extent that you might even gather together in a really nice place like this and start talking about it as if it were something definitely real as opposed to um, what somebody else might say it as being. Um, I guess maybe under the undercurrent of what I'm asking is, is it concerned that there's uh, a, a, an exclusion of a non-theistic perspective, of a non-philosophical perspective, a pers- perspective which takes into account, into account psychological data, which I know you've, you've kind of poo-pooed. Um, no, no, not data. No, don't poo-poo data. Oh, okay. Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of data in support of the contention that uh, reminders of mortality actually lead to um, strengthening uh, binding to cultural yes. worldviews, for instance. So just wondering, I mean, do you think that there's some degree of relativity? And uh, do you think that um, your view is colored by your worldview and your biases and perhaps even your own development? Because it's a compelling view. But uh, I was just wondering if you see... Uh, how, how that colors your perspective on separate. That's what a worldview is. A worldview isn't a factual detail. It's a picture of a whole. It's a map that puts the details in a certain order. And everybody has one. Nobody can avoid one, even those who oppose worldviews. That is itself a worldview. So, so how does that affect your perspective on suffering and evil? It gives me light. What is it's that? It's a mean? flashlight. Uh, the data are the same. You and I both know the data. We interpret them. Why? Well, there are two different reasons why two different people interpret the same data very differently. Uh, One of them comes from the person. Your character, your personality, your proclivities, your fears, your desires, your opinions. The other might come from objective truth. There might be a light that shines in one mind and not the other. Or more likely, a light that shines in both minds but differently. So you see something that's really there that I don't, and I see something that's really there and you don't. For instance, uh, let's say I, as a typical theist, would say, death is great because it leads to heaven. I'm omitting a whole lot. Death is an atrocity. Death is an enemy before it's a friend. And it can be a friend even if there is no life after death because life on earth forever without death would be like eggs going rotten. And I might not see that as someone who doesn't believe in life after death does see it. So I'm insensitive to that data, so I have to listen more mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you're still, you're still looking at forever. I mean, I, maybe there's just you no know, forever. Yeah. We, we all have to be open to all the data we can. But it seems to me we have to be looking for truth, not just comparing opinions, because that's just sort of interpersonal mental masturbation. Yeah, maybe We're all playing we have. with opinions. Maybe, maybe, all, maybe all we have. If that's all we have, then we're like those two people in the New Yorker cartoon some years ago on a desert island starving. Uh, a message in the bottle comes. There's hope. They open the message, they read it, their face falls. The caption says, it's only from us. It may be Harvey. It may be Harvey. Well, if it's Harvey, we're in for it. But at least you can still make a Pascal's wager. There's no conclusive case that it's only Harvey. So if both options are equally intellectually respectable, what would you gain by uh, the despair and the emptiness by opting for it. At least Pascal's wager. It makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, I don't look at things only in terms of loss and gain. So. No, neither do I. 
Neither do I. That, that comes second. The most important question is truth. I mean, if, if, if you would give me a tremendous psychological gain, uh, an immense amount of happiness at the expense of truth, or an immense amount of truth at the expense of happiness, that would be a hard choice. But I would at least want to choose truth rather than happiness. William James divided all minds into the tender-minded and the tough-minded. The tender-minded seek uh, happiness and ideals and comfort and integration, all that sort of thing. The tough-minded seek facts. And he said, a tough-minded person and a tender-minded person can't understand each other and they can't really have an argument. And I think he's a little wrong there because deep down I think we're all tough-minded. For instance, this is a wonderful place, but does anybody really think this is heaven? And that I'm God? Well, if you thought that this was heaven and I was God and this was the beatific vision, boy, would you be happy? Well, if happiness is all you want, why don't you believe that? Well, because you know it's not true, stupid. See? <laughs> truth trumps happiness. So, you know, one truth, two happiness. We have time for one more question. So if they're really quick, we can do two. But, uh... <laughs> So, okay, thank you. Uh, in, in light of the uh, last couple of questions, I wonder if you might uh, briefly, so that we can get the second question, contrast uh, Kierkegaard's balancing act of faith with uh, Nietzsche's nihilistic will to power. In 25 words or less, uh, Kierkegaard's faith is not a balancing act, it's a leap, a definite commitment with all of his heart but in a lot of darkness. Nietzsche made the opposite leap. He said, I will now disprove the existence of all gods. If there were gods, how could I bear not to be a god? Consequently, there are no gods. That's faith. But it's the opposite faith. It makes no sense. It's Lucifer's faith. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I think when Nietzsche goes into hell, he'll sing Sinatra's song, I did it my way. <laughs> Last question. I'll try to make mine quick then. Um, I'm a little confused, and maybe you can clarify this, and maybe I just misunderstood you. Um, you're talking about the whole idea of either the result of evil or the result of um, suffering producing something good. And um, I've also heard this philosophy called, like, the fortunate fall. Like, in other words, that... Um, this is my understanding, just that it's like a good thing that Adam and Eve sinned because, you know, then God could send um, his son. But that doesn't seem to make sense. So you also might have said something in answering that other question about when you referenced death. So I don't know. I'm just really confused. I we think are, you get it. You that's a good question. <laughs> if it's fortunate or good, then why not do it? If God brings good out of evil, then why not supply him with a lot of evil? Because we're not the general, and we're not advising the general. We're foot soldiers, and we've been given our marching orders. There is good and there is evil. Uh, there is right and there is wrong. Fight for the right and against the wrong. We're also given little clues about the general strategy. Even when you do wrong, I can make good out of it. And that's dangerous. It's wonderful, but it's dangerous. And it can't substitute for the first thing. We know very clearly our marching orders. So let's get out and do them. <laughs>